0: Hey science fans, I have another fantastic podcast to recommend to you guys, the Waterline Podcast. Everything you need to know about the science of water. Have we managed to develop the most sustainable irrigation techniques? Can water be the bringer of peace? Can flushing your toilet light up your house? The answer to all of these questions and many more in the Waterline Podcast which is an initiative of the Israel New Tech as part of the Israeli Ministry of Economy and Industry. It's a new podcast that, uh, is, that is created to communicate the many facets of water. So please check out an episode. I've, uh, I've checked out several. I actually went back and listened to the very first episode, which gives you a nice overview of sources of fresh water all around the world rivers lakes underground sources and to see how how delicate they are how prone they are to contamination this is exceptionally important stuff for our world and our future and i highly recommend this podcast search waterline podcast on itunes or in your android podcast app Hey everybody! Very good episode today. Uh, we're going to be talking a lot about self-deception and more. Uh, Self-deception—something that we we touch on, I think, a fair amount on the podcast here and there. But we don't—we um, haven't really dedicated a whole ton of, like, you know, almost full episodes to it yet. And I think we're going to be doing a lot more of that in the future. I know there's a lot of things that I'm interested in and guests that i really want to get on um so this is one you're going to want to pay attention to and i hope you're as interested in this stuff as i am also a fun special announcement going to be doing the first live here we are podcast this may in wilmington north carolina for the cape fear comedy festival and uh i just started reaching out and putting together some guests so it's going to be um, me and three scientists on stage in front of a live audience and we're gonna record all that and and so you guys will get to hear it as well but if you know anyone in Wilmington make sure and spread the word for me I'll have all those links up on my website soon as long as all the other stuff that I'm putting together I'm also doing my psychedelic show a good trip. Um, my stand-up show about psychedelics there that same night also i'm doing a, i'm doing that show i'm starting to add that show in a bunch of places the big one coming up is in portland oregon i'm doing that on april 13th if you know anyone in portland it would mean a lot if you told people to come out to that that's helium comedy club one of the best comedy clubs in in the country and i want to get a whole bunch of people out so that i can work there more and and the other um venues that they have around the country so help me out with that i'll also be adding at least one is is basically confirmed um but but probably at least probably two if not three other shows around oregon i also have a uh, have kirkland washington coming up for may so i'm going to be doing a lot of uh northeast stuff salem oregon it looks like um thursday april 7th uh, mcminnville oregon uh, is on the table right now i'm looking into some other stuff and then when in may when i'm out in wilmington i'm lining up a whole bunch of other stuff around the southeast i'm going to be doing a good trip in uh in louisville i'm going to be doing it in asheville i've always i've been wanting to go to asheville for so long um here's such good things and i hear that it's a good good town to be talking about psychedelics in so anyway a, a whole bunch of others birmingham alabama a bunch of other southeast stuff coming up um some of it's confirmed some of it i'll have links up Um, maybe by the time you see this or within a week or so, or hear this rather. Anyway, um, thank you all for your interest, and let me plug a few things quick, and I really hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. Today, I'm back at UT Austin uh, in in one of my favorite cities uh, to visit on a lovely day. I'm here with Associate Professor of Cognitive Neuroscience and Social Personality Psychology, Jennifer Beer. Uh, thank you, Jennifer, for joining me.
1: Thank you for having me,
0: um, and and for attending my show the other night, and uh, and uh, especially consa- I didn't I didn't know that you were uh, due any <laughs> any day now. Is it, is it your first?
1: Uh, yes. Yeah.
0: I imagine yeah. by this by the time this comes out, you'll uh, you'll. You'll be a
1: probably have a
0: newborn.
1: She'll be on the outside.
0: Yes, be like <laughs> yeah. this is we were we were joking about how I have my fingers crossed that I have to end up delivering this <laughs> baby during this interview because I desperately need any media attention <laughs> that, that I can get. But um, uh, so uh, how long have you been at UT here?
1: I've been here about nine years. Oh,
0: mm-hmm. cool! So you do a lot of stuff with, um, uh, with self-deception. Yes, right? That's right. Um, and and you're you're looking at it from more of a, a neuroscience angle. than I'm reading a book right now, um, The Folly of Fools. Oh, uh, Robert Trivers. Yep,
2: yeah,
0: Read Familiar. it. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and it's it's just uh, something that's absolutely fascinating uh, to me. What aspects of social deception are you studying?
1: So we're. Mostly have been concerned with situations in which you deceive yourself in kind of a positive way. <laughs> uh, so you think you're a little bit better than you actually are. Um, and Sorry, I thought I heard
0: a door there oh. in case the audience is wondering why we had a <laughs> weird pause.
1: Um, um, and we've kind of looked at that. We sort of discovered there's sort of two different reasons why people deceive themselves in this positive way. Um, one is to feel good about themselves, which I think is a pretty, you know, intuitive reason why people might tell themselves that they're a little bit better than they actually are. It makes you feel good. Um, but we've also discovered that actually when you're just being a lazy thinker (laughs) and you're not really thinking very hard about yourself, for some reason, most people seem to end up with this overly positive view of themselves Mm. in that situation.
0: So this is, I I think... Probably a lot of listeners would would have come across an article at some point say, about how how people often consider themselves to be better drivers than the general population or or better uh, or smarter than um, the general population i uh, the one the one study that i've always loved telling people about is the um, is the, and this is, I don't know if this was Trivers that actually did the work or not, but but the idea of, of you take someone's face and then you add um, more symmetry to make it more attractive oh, by, yeah. by like, uh, you know, five degrees more attractive or whatever, and then five degrees less. You know, you make it a little wonky, and and it's five degrees less attractive. So now you have like ten or eleven pictures or whatever. Then you jumble them all up and show people a flash of those pictures and have people point to their face, right? <laughs> that they've seen their whole life, <laughs> and and people generally pick the picture that's ten to twenty percent more attractive than their their actual. Yes. Yes face yeah so 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 this is the sort of kind of this is along the lines of the sort of thing that you're studying just on more of a neurological basis yes,
1: that's correct, yeah, um
0: all right, so so can can you unpack what what are the so the two factors are one feeling better about yourself and and two the brain being uh lazy that's that's uh I don't know which one you think we should talk about first if there's one that's easier but i'm uh, particularly interested in the the kind of lazy part the well I, I really like thinking about the kind of efficiencies of of the brain mm-hmm. and um, and o- often how sometimes i think the brain sometimes misinterprets what it what information it needs to know mm-hmm. and what it doesn't and like uh, you, you know you said you enjoyed my uh, think about how, how hard it is to read neuroscience in yeah. my show. Like, why,
2: why doesn't the brain understand and why doesn't itself. it want to learn about itself? <laughs> you know?
0: um, so, so is it kind of along those lines that it's missing?
1: Sort of. So what we think at this point, what we think is going on is that, you know, people try to do stuff in the most efficient way possible, right? They're going to they're gonna be judicious with their resources. They're not going to put a lot of effort forth if they don't have to. And so a lot of times they go with the first thing that comes to mind. And what's fascinating is the first thing that comes to mind about ourselves tends to be positive stuff.
2: <laughs> and
1: so when we don't kind of sift through all of the information that we could use and we just use that kind of readily available stuff – It tends to be positive things. And so that gets overemphasized in our perceptions of ourselves. Huh.
0: Um, Yeah, that's a, a, you know, how would you describe yourself? Well, I'm a generous, (laughs) handsome man (laughs) with a a great sense of humor Mm -hmm. and very intelligent. And then... Also, oh, I have some self-esteem issues. Th- those, those descriptions come later on, I guess, when you ask people if they
1: come at all. Yeah, they definitely take longer to be generated um, mm-hmm. if they're generated at all without additional probing.
0: Do you think that some of this has to do with um, with kind of the social pressures? To it seems like there's a social pressure to kind of be positive. I, I don't know if it has to do with advertising fitness or uh, basically if someone asks you how you're doing and you give them an honest like well yeah i'm just i don't understand i don't get the point of living anymore (laughs) (laughs) that's that's kind of now you're bringing that person down and that's kind of on you for doing that do you you think some of it is just the social pressure of
1: uh, yeah so i think that there's certainly that social pressure exists um and we have norms um In different domains in which that would be true. I think the reason that I find this effect fascinating and maybe having something to do more than just social pressure is that you don't find gender differences. And certainly it's the case that I think there are social norms for men and women to, you know, some of them. Should be a little more humble than others kind of mm-hmm. thing, and so I think in terms of you know putting your best foot forward, just kind of arguing that well, you know people have been socialized to put their best foot forward and and maybe that's why the positive stuff is the easiest for them to remember, and that's what comes to mind first is because people are told, focus on your positive qualities, or parents and teachers try to reflect positive qualities at least in Western cultures uh, before they get into negative <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> attributes. Um, but I think it's 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 just very interesting that we don't question it either, right? Mm-hmm. That, that we don't, as interested as people are in themselves, I find it interesting that when you ask them, what do you like, they give a very automatic response most of the time. They don't think about it very deeply.
0: Yeah, that's it. You know, <laughs> as a comedian, it's funny you'll, you'll, You'll have a bad show, and you'll blame the audience and be like, "What a bunch of dummies!" <laughs> yeah. And then, uh, and then you'll have a good show, and you're like, "Well, these people get it. They they were correct. Yeah. <laughs> that yeah. audience was correct in yeah. enjoying that uh, that show." So, is, is there is there um, so is this a large variation from how? Uh, Uh, Like what's the contrast in how people perceive others like 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 people's first um, impression or first instinct of others?
1: Yeah. So that is a really interesting question because the answer depends on who the other person is. And it also depends on what kind of quality you're trying to understand about them. So, for example, this kind of tendency to you know, sort of think you're better than the majority of your peers on um, various dimensions, um, that extends to close others. So romantic partners, friends, um, even family, depending on your relationship with your family. Um, it's also the case, though, that... Um, We, Although we're very suspicious about negative information about ourselves, we're sort of slow to kind of accept negative information as true about ourselves. It's the opposite when we think about other people. Um, So we're quick to be like, oh, you know, if we see somebody doing something bad or evil, we're like, oh, that's just true about them. There can't be, you know, they weren't having a bad day. We just decide they're an evil person or whatever. Um, and in fact, they've shown in um, research, I always think this is so funny, where, you know, if somebody, you, you know, is acting in a very moral way, they're doing all these things, donating to charity, helping people cross the street. They do one bad thing and you turn on them immediately yeah. with your impression. You're like, you are a bad person. Yeah,
2: yeah. But a
1: bad person does one good thing. And you're like, mm, yeah, you're going to have to prove that to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, it's. I try to remind myself of this sort of thing when I'm driving because I do have a bit of a temper and a bit of road rage issues. It's (laughs) something I've I've gotten better. I'm trying to work on it. But definitely if someone cuts me off or starts merging into my lane because of the blind spot and they don't see me or whatever, and my first instinct is like honking and yelling and what kind of an idiot could possibly turn and, and not see me or something like that and and you know i i i do the same thing to someone else I'm like eh, everyone makes mistakes yeah <laughs> <laughs> you know? it's it's funny how much your perception can be changed by the context too because i'll if i have nowhere to be um uh you know i i don't i don't kind of i'm not as critical of people's driving but when i'm in a hurry to get somewhere everyone on the road is just a bunch of idiots (laughs) that that doesn't know how to drive you know yeah um so so how so how are you studying this Uh, uh, so so you're you're looking at examining this at at um like a neurological level or are you doing like MRIs? and
1: Yeah, so we've done it two different ways in terms of trying to understand the neural underpinnings. So we've looked at um, MRI scans of people uh, when they're making these kind of inflated claims about themselves. And we also have looked at individuals who have selective brain damage. So they're missing the part of the brain or parts of the brain that we think are involved in generating these inflated um, perceptions of yourself.
0: Oh, cool. And
1: um, and so th- that's sort of the two different ways we've tried to understand.
0: Okay, I'd like to talk about both of them. Okay. Um, <laughs> could, so first off, how do you how do you prime this uh, <laughs> this response of getting people to uh, you know speak highly of themselves or whatever? Or, or you just ask people to describe themselves or.
1: Well, we've done it lots of different ways, and it turns out it's super easy to get people to do this. (laughs) It's actually a great classroom uh, demonstration as well um, because it's a very robust effect. So, gosh, we've done it a bunch of different ways. We've had people estimate how well they did on a trivia task, and people always think they did better than they actually did. Um, We've asked people to compare themselves, you know, to their average peer, you know, how talented are you, that kind of thing compared to your average peer. Um, we have threatened their self-esteem, told them that, you know, we took a picture of you last week and we distributed that to other people at universities. We're now going to show you, uh, what people thought of your photograph. Oh, and by the way, can you tell us what your personality is like? And so after they're told that people did not find their photograph attractive, they're much more likely to say that they have all these great qualities. Um, Oh,
0: really? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. As like a defensive,
1: yes, that's yeah thing, mm-hmm.
0: which I guess is is from the the very beginning of our conversation of, of the main reason why people do that. That is, I I still would have thought that. I mean, if I, I don't know. In my mind, it seems like maybe I I get down on myself more than most people, or something. I look, look, I'm I'm even the best at getting down. Yeah. On myself. <laughs> <laughs> but. but uh, I would think that if you told me that people thought I was less attractive, that I thought that it would be a humbling experience.
1: Well, I think it is, but I think people respond to that by trying to boost themselves up Hmm. again. Um, Probably one of the best findings in this literature is that people have unrealistically positive perceptions of their susceptibility to this bias. So you can even tell people this is work that was done by Emily Pronin. You can tell people, you know, on average people think that they're better than they actually are. And, you know, you can explain, you know, this affects like 70, 80 percent of people. And people say, oh, yeah, I know so many people like that. <laughs> and then you'll say, well, how how likely do you think it is that you would engage in this behavior? And no one thinks that they they themselves yeah, would do it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
0: I, I'm just the best at being unbiased. <laughs> yes, exactly.
1: <laughs> exactly.
0: Yeah. Um, and and so uh, so you you prime these responses in mm-hmm. different ways or ask various questions and then uh, so what what regions of the brain are if you need to get into the brain damage part at this point that's fine too but so yeah. so what regions of the brain are uh, we've we've done a fair amount of neuroscience on on this program, okay. so I, I think my listeners can can hang in uh, a little bit. I know sometimes it's a little jargony, but uh, but but yeah, if you could explain,
1: yeah, so it's it's basically the orbital frontal cortex. Um, sometimes people call it the ventromedial prefrontal cortex. It's a part of your frontal lobes that's right behind your eyes. Mm -hmm. Um, It has nothing to do with vision, (laughs) Um, but it's called the orbital frontal cortex because it rests against your eye orbits. And what's interesting is that what we found is, if I can anthropomorphize the brain for a second, sort of the regions that this area talks to when you're having these kind of unrealistically positive views of yourself is different depending on whether it's that self-defensive flavor or the kind of I'm being lazy and just not thinking hard enough flavor Mm. Um, so it's the that area is always involved but it's kind of involved in different networks depending on the sort of motivation behind this kind of self-deception
0: um so so what are the two differences then?
1: Well, one network we have a fairly good handle on because we found it in three different studies. The other one we haven't found is convergent evidence, so I'm not 100% certain. But the one that we know is the more self-defensive uh, kind. And in that case, what's going on is that orbital frontal region is sort of talking less to... Uh, sort of a more lateral or kind of the side of your frontal lobes, this middle frontal gyrus area, um, than it is when you're being kind of accurate. Um, But it's boosting its connection or how much it's sort of co-varying with parts of the basal ganglia.
0: Okay. So are there ways that you have found to um, uh, taper or eliminate this effect where, like, I I would think that... um, yeah, I, I might have an inflated sense of my intelligence. But then if you go, OK, Shane, now you're going to do an IQ test. Uh, how do you think you're going to do on this test? You're actually going to have to do it. And you're, uh, you know, being graded on your accuracy of your perception or something like uh, Are there any like kind of workarounds that get past that positivity bias?
1: There are. So um
0: how can i feel worse about yeah myself? exactly right how do, you, how do you just like <laughs> crush
1: people's dreams um so we didn't do this work this is um work you know done by other people um for example constantine sedekides has done some great work sort of showing that if you motivate people to think harder about their answers like you know i'm gonna need 10 reasons why you think this is true of yourself you can get people to start kind of you know, getting this more kind of accurate view. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that works best when it's not the self-defensive flavor. It's really just the kind of lazy thinking. Right. I wasn't doing complete information um, to begin with. In In terms of the self-defensive uh, version, which I think is the harder one to combat, uh, because it is serving this emotion, you know, purpose for you, Um, So people are hesitant to give it up. Um, Accountability is, is very helpful too. So if you tell someone, look, I want you to tell me about your personality, or I want you to tell me about the feedback you received, and they know they're going to have to justify that to someone that they believe is an expert or an authority, Mm -hmm. then they will not engage in this inflation. Um, The other way to uh, sort of Encourage people not to do this was developed by Del Paulus at UBC where he's shown that um, because one of the things people will do is they'll tell you that they know lots of things that they don't know anything about if they think it will make them look smart. Um, and so what he does is he has people he gives them names of authors or book titles and says, like, you know, how much do you know about these different things? Oh, I know so much, but
0: we had a pretty recent episode. We talked a lot about the illusion of explanatory depth,
1: okay? Yes, yeah, okay, so yeah, related definitely. Right. Um, but if you warn people, hey, I'm gonna ask you about you know 10 things, and some of them are fake, they don't exist people will not sort of overclaim how much they know about them. If they know that the, their deception could be caught, mm. um they will not engage in this as much. Hmm. So that's another way you can
0: That's very interesting. It's I well, I guess I guess also it I mean if if um you know, if the defensive one can be triggered by uh by having, you know, telling someone that they were rated negatively or you know kind of attacking someone it's it's then how what control would you have as an individual to uh (laughs) because you the more the more defensive you are the more biased you're going to be but then if you're letting your guard down you're like kind of opening yourself up more and more vulnerable um i like like what what kind of practical applications do you think this has for um, helping people understand themselves better or, or why the, they think the way that they do?
1: Yeah, so I think that it's helpful in a couple of different ways. So first, before we started doing this research and, and we weren't looking at the level of the brain, mm-hmm. Um, you had a lot of different people talking about this effect. You had psychologists talking about it, um, clinical psychologists, social psychologists. You also had economists, um, people who are interested in judgment and decision making. And they could not agree on why this happens. Why do people you know, always say these really great things about themselves that aren't really tied to reality um, as closely as you would hope? And basically what our research has shown is that everyone is right <laughs> that there that there's actually a lot of different things going on. And so that kind of helps you when you think about trying to apply this in practical ways, right? Because we know that when you overestimate how long something is gonna, you know, take or um how quickly you can, you know, do your schoolwork or your work at work, you know, kind of thing. Um We need to know why that's happening. That's what our research suggests. Because if it's a self-defensive type thing where you have kind of a lot of pride tied up in this perception of yourself as very efficient or, you know, very intelligent versus, well, you just didn't think hard enough when you were trying to plan your time, Mm. the way you would intervene in those two cases is quite different. And so what our research has shown is because there are separate neural profiles, you can't really just say, oh, well, if someone's an overestimator, you know, they're kind of full of it. it it may be that they actually are just poor at planning and that if you teach them planning skills, they could get better. Hmm. Um, Whereas somebody who's self-defensive, you could teach them planning skills until you're blue in the face. That's not going to help because Hmm. they're doing this to protect their sense of self-esteem or their pride. Um, And some research that we've been doing currently which is kind of ongoing, suggests that the the way that people are able to maintain these um, unrealistically positive uh, views of themselves is that they kind of come into every situation just expecting. They sort of have a foregone conclusion of, I'm just going to tell myself that I'm great. I'm not going to listen to feedback. you know I'm not really going to look at the evidence in front of me. I'm just going to try to get to this positive answer. And so it seems like the intervention in that case would have to be giving people coping skills of, well, when this expectation isn't met or being able to see when the expectation is not appropriate, mm-hmm. um, which, again, is, you know, very different than just teaching somebody like, well, wait, think about the last time you tried to do this task. How long did it take you? And, you know. Right.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, it's it's uh, it's funny how, how confidence is, is one of the silliest and most important things <laughs> to have in life as a trait at the same time. Like, like say, to be a stand-up comedian, I mean, you have to be, like, pretty delusional to, <laughs> to think, like, oh, I'm so darn funny that people should put me on TV. And, you know. and, uh, and if you didn't have these delusions, you would never get to that level in the first place. But at the same time, um, you know, if you start... If you start thinking that you're just the most talented comedian out there, uh, a lot of times, one you'll sometimes think your jokes are much funnier than than they are, or take too big of risks and, and bomb. And and then the other thing is, is that uh, I feel like uh, I feel like sometimes when I'm my most confident in my career, I start taking my foot off the gas quite a bit and kicking my feet up a little bit and you don't you know you don't work as hard yeah um so so i guess it can go either way but um so i i wanted to go back to talking about uh brain damage okay if we could that's very interesting to me this is this is kind of like the the origins of neuroscience were kind of founded on brain damage, yeah. essentially. Yeah, right? before we
1: had scanners, that was okay. the way that we could understand how the brain worked, is right. when parts were missing, what what went wrong? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so that was the my sort of original introduction into neuroscience work also was kind of through neuropsychological populations, and I worked with folks who had um, traumatic brain injuries, so you know they've been in some kind of accident, um, and the unfortunate thing about the orbital frontal cortex is that evolution hasn't quite caught up with the whole motorcycle thing. And so um, that part of your brain is kind of really close to these sort of jagged edges of your skull that hold your eye orbits in place. And so if you get in a high-speed collision where your brain is like bouncing back and forth in your um, skull, (laughs) when it shoots forward after going towards the back, it gets sort of sheared off um, in this region. And so you can get really selective... Brain damage um, in this region. So
0: don't overestimate your your skills as a cyclist. And wear a helmet Everybody, for and sure.
1: Wear a helmet. Yeah, wear a helmet for sure. Um, and so uh, I was fortunate enough to be working with Bob Knight, who is a professor at Berkeley, uh, who treats a lot of patients with this type of brain damage. And he was frustrated at the time because. You know, these folks can remember pretty well. They certainly talk fine. They walk fine. These are all the things that neurologists, like, if you can do those things, they're like, you're good to go. by. And they don't really think about socioemotional or personality issues as much. Mm-hmm. Um, and, oh, another famous case of this is Phineas Gage. A lot of people have heard right. of him in their psych one class. <laughs> um and so he
0: had a uh, he had like a road tie or something like that yeah, a railroad a tie yeah it's tapping and then it shot like that through is, his yeah. eye and, <laughs> yeah. and through the front and so he took the day off of work and Yeah, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> well, as you do think, when that happens. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think he I think he walked to the hospital or something. He like walked that. to the doctor, yeah, yeah.
1: That's what they say. Yeah. Um because again, it doesn't impact your motor ability at all. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um and even, you know, as recently as the early two thousands, I remember there was this case in Greece of a guy who was spear fishing and he had a spear kind of do a Phineas Gage on him and oh, man. the headline said like you know man's um, brain pierced with a spear but it doesn't matter because it's like a non-functional part of the brain and I'm like uh, it's not non-functional <laughs> trust me you want this part to work yeah. um, but the way I got into it was um, Bob Knight was frustrated because these folks have a really hard time many times maintaining social relationships, maintaining employment Um, And so even though they can walk, talk and move around, you know, there's something going on with them that needs to be treated and, and, um, and, you know, helped. And he was thinking that it was more socio-emotional, you know, that there's, you know, potentially personality changes and wanted to understand it. And my training was in social personality psychology, but I was interested in the brain basis of, you know, all of these effects. And so we started working together. He really generously allowed me to collaborate with him. And what we discovered in um, some of our initial studies is that these folks, when this part of the brain is not working right... They don't experience embarrassment when you would want to experience embarrassment. (laughs)
2: Um,
1: They can't, they have the capability of experiencing embarrassment, I hasten to add. So it's not like they just don't have emotions. They certainly have emotions. They're actually quite emotional in many ways. Um, They just don't get the emotions when they should. So when they do something embarrassing, they may feel proud of it instead of embarrassed. Um, and then as we kind of explored a little further, we realized that it was because they kind of have this lazy thinking that when this, this area wasn't working for them, they were not sort of thinking about their behavior and really kind of trying to evaluate, like, what did I just do? And does that fit with what I think I should be doing? And, um, and they tend to have this kind of positive bias about their behavior. They always think they're doing a little bit better than they actually are.
0: Hmm. Um, and th- this region of the brain is is one of the last to mature. Is that, is that, that yeah? From an
1: evolutionary perspective, it's considered quote unquote newer in humans. Yeah.
0: And uh, and even I I mean I'm talking like in a in a lifespan isn't it isn't it one of um, the last parts to develop to wire like, up. Um, yeah don't they say like the prefrontal is like. 25 years old or something like that. Yeah, I first. mean
1: that yeah, so this part of the brain what I also think is very interesting about it and speci- so the frontal lobes is a lot of your brain and this right. is more of a like, you know, tiny part of that real estate. Um it is the least plastic. So what they've discovered is that And this, you know, neurologists have an interesting sense of humor and they're always like, oh, if you're going to get brain damage, you should get it when you're a kid because your brain will, you know, rewire. And Mm -hmm. um, not true for this part. It's actually um, you don't seem to be able to overcome damage to this region in the same way. It doesn't seem to recover uh, Hmm. function.
0: Is this something that like alcohol can damage or or drugs or anything?
1: Sure. Yeah. Alcohol could um, impact it. And actually... um, this is an area that is, uh, discussed a lot in methamphetamine abuse. Um, and some of our research we hope maybe shed some light on this. So, uh, what Nora Velkow and some other people at NIDA have found is that this region does not seem to function for a good six months after you stop using meth. So it certainly doesn't work correctly while you're using meth. Mm. Um, seems to kind of go on hiatus or something, uh, not working correctly for up to six months, even after you stop. And you can imagine that if this is the part that, you know, is kind of helping you combat positive illusions, which is in one case, that's what we find, um, with the lazy thinking that this is the region that kind of gets rid of the, the kind of unrealistically positive perceptions. Mm -hmm. Um, if that's not working, no wonder people relapse, right? Because they don't have that kind of internal sort of like, you know, smacking yourself in the face. Yeah, and, don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> this isn't OK. Don't do that. You, you don't have the capability to, you know, just use this one time. It's really going to be. Backslide.
0: Well, and and this this may not be related, and you're welcome to take a pass on any either of these questions. But I, I did have two thoughts come to mind mm-hmm. r- related I, as you talk about that. I when I injured myself, I I, you know, I broke both my feet, and, and um, I had to. I, I was taking um, oxycotton and okay. oxycodone for a little while, Okay. and it was. Um, some days you'd want to take it just because you were having a bad day or whatever, because it's i mean it, it, it was like an incredibly de- uh, depressing situation that i was in and everything but but uh, there was you could have one of these little pills and all of a sudden I'd be like oh everything's going to be fine this is going to be it, it it did it seemed like it made me so confident and um, and i just didn't worry as much i i don't know if if that chemicals affecting the same Part of the brain, but I just remember thinking, "Yep, everything's gonna be just fine," and then I could like get back to work and everything else. Yeah, I, I don't know. May may or may not be related. And then the other thing that I was thinking about the, which it doesn't seem like that's the case now that you've told me, maybe uh, the maturation of the brain doesn't have as much of an effect. But but it did uh, <laughs> the the inability to um, understand embarrassment in the right context. This might have nothing to do with it, but it did it did bring to mind um, you know, ideas of like frat guys doing <laughs> like <Yes>. dumb stuff <laughs> at parties. And I didn't know if that's that was like a brain maturity thing or just possibly that's just the time of your life where the social context is is such where that stuff's encouraged and you shouldn't be as embarrassed to go around streaking or whatever else. Yeah.
1: I mean yeah, so those are both really interesting questions. So I think with the the oxycontin um example i mean the first thing that comes to mind when you say something like that to me is is that a positive mood effect because we know that when people are in a better mood um you know it broadens their perspective they're more likely to engage in meaningful work you know they're more pro-social so you feel more loving and helpful toward other people um and so i wonder if that is even just part of it Mm -hmm. right um
0: I definitely felt very loving did you <laughs> and, uh, yeah like I, I would take some oxy and I would want to call like everyone I knew and just tell them that they were just the best and
1: <laughs> <laughs> um yeah I wonder if I'll get some of that when I'm in labor but anyway I'm, but um I mean yeah so that's one thing that I would kind of wonder about that I mean with embarrassment and kind of you know help you know, having it be functional and helpful for people. This is work done by Dacher Keltner at Berkeley where, you know, a lot of times when people were talking about emotion originally, they thought emotions are terrible, they make you irrational, then everybody changed their mind, emotions are awesome. Um, I think the economists kind of caught on to that first and then the psychologists sort of adopted that view. Um, But actually, it was only very recently that people agreed emotions like embarrassment or shame could be functional. Mm. Um, Because when people were thinking of emotions being helpful, they meant more like anger and disgust and happiness. Um, But I think that one of the things that's interesting about embarrassment is it develops a lot later than other kinds of emotions, at least in its adult form. And it's heavily determined by the social norms of the culture or group that you live in, Mm. right? What's embarrassing in our culture is not necessarily what's embarrassing in many other cultures, or at least there can be more variants, and so, when you give you know the example of kids in college, you know doing, you know things that break a lot of social norms or <laughs> yeah. whatever. Um, I mean, it depends on the group that they're referencing, right? right? So, if they're not thinking of society as a whole, but they're thinking of their fraternity or their groups of friends or whatever, maybe right. it's not embarrassing <laughs> to them. Yeah.
0: And it, it, that's also an interesting point to make that uh, that it's an emotion that takes a while to learn because you, you always look at all these uh, oftentimes people people will be like oh the innocence of of children and they'll just say anything and and they uh, they have no shame and oh i wish i still had that it's like well maybe, maybe you don't yeah <laughs> like, we we just we just let kids do that because we <laughs> understand that they don't have their full cognitive functions. If you're an adult and you're acting in that yeah. way, you no, know, there's, yeah. it's, not no, it's not going to be good. No,
1: it's not going to be good. Yeah, and that's, you know, that's kind of what I would say a lot of times when I give talks is I say, like, you know, I ask the audience, like, who here wishes they could never feel embarrassment again? And you'll get a lot of people saying, I you know, that would be great. Um, and I said, well, by the end of this talk, I'm hoping to convince you that embarrassment is a great thing to be able to feel you know? yeah. <laughs> and that it saves you um, actually a lot of uh, trouble um, because it helps you avoid repeating social mistakes. And so that's what's so hard for the patients that have damage in this area is that, you know, they say all sorts of things to people. I mean, you definitely don't have to ask them, what are you thinking? Because hmm. they're telling you. Right, right. <laughs> um, and it gets them into a lot of trouble. And it makes it hard for them to maintain relationships, as I said. And also to, you know, continue employment many yeah. times. <laughs> you know,
0: my least favorite part of embarrassment is is the feeling embarrassed for feeling embarrassed part. Yeah. Where, <laughs> where the initial thing, like, isn't all that embarrassing. And then, like, like maybe, maybe I m- miss... Like, um... Like the other night at my show, I I think I was trying to think of the word, um, uh, apophenia, um, or apophenia, apophenia. Yeah. See, yeah. I'm screwing it up again because <laughs> now I'm, I'm questioning myself. And I was like, I was having trouble recalling it on stage and like, I don't care. That's not, I, I move right on. Have, most of my audience doesn't know the word. Yeah. Um, uh, and, that's not consciously that's not like an embarrassing thing to me but then you can feel like your face getting a little red and that's like Oh no. Do they think I do they see that I'm embarrassed now? And then that is like creates this feedback loop. Yeah. That, that I, that's the worst part of embarrassment um, at, to me. But but I, I guess I understand um, the usefulness of it. But it is it's funny that like your throat will clench up and stuff. Like yeah. your brain's like, you stop talking <laughs> right now. <laughs> <laughs> um uh, so it, I don't know if this is uh, uh, along the same lines or, or not, and uh, but uh, this idea I've heard some people talk about how how uh, possibly it is that uh, not not in severe cases of depression, mm-hmm. but in um, just kind of normal cases, everyone experiences depression here and there in their lives. Uh, in in normal cases of of uh, depression. Um That it might actually be that that people are seeing the world with more clarity than usual and that and that's what's causing them to or that depressed people in general see see the world with a bit more clarity and don't have the same bias
1: yeah, so that that was a um wave of research called depressive realism, and so mm. people were saying, Oh look, you know.' the depressed people, they've got a better handle on how it all works or whatever. Um, And I think that uh, the research on these kind of overly positive uh, self-views was kind of a reaction against that to say, you know, no, actually, and and we found this too in our own research, that these unrealistically positive self-views, they're kind of good and bad. Mm -hmm. So like you had kind of mentioned earlier when we were talking that thinking that you're good at something motivates you to do it, mm-hmm. right? Like, who would get up on stage, right? Everyone is afraid of public speaking, even people who are extroverted. That's, like, one of their top fears. Yeah. <laughs> um, but as a comedian, that's your job, like, that you got to do it. Uh, and so... Feeling motivated uh, to do that is is very helpful. Um, t- you know, to have meaningful work, to be productive and happy. Yeah, even
0: sitting and writing, I I sometimes will. You know, uh, when I'm in uh, you know a negative state, I'll be like, what if I just never come up with another joke idea ever again. (laughs) And then all of a sudden that's like, that can be very paralyzing. Oh,
1: sure. Yeah. 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 And so psychologists, the way that they define, you know, mental health or kind of what's adaptive or what's functional is what kind of gets you through the day, right? What, what allows you to sort of be productive, to have good relationships. And so the depressive realism folks showed that, yes, while it's true sometimes compared to objective measures, people who are depressed will give more realistic answers about their capabilities, they're not getting through the day in the way that psychologists would like to see. And so it's kind of a definition, um, of -hmm. adaptiveness. I would say that comes into the question that you asked, um, which is why people say that these kind of unrealistically positive self-views are the more adaptive form. And we've, we've found that in the short term, they certainly are adaptive. Mm -hmm. Um, so for example, um, it can help you kind of overcome sort of feelings of failure if you kind of just screwed up a task. If you're telling yourself you did a little better than you actually did, kind of buffers you against that negative uh, self-view. Del Paulus has done some really interesting research showing that we actually like people the more that they inflate (laughs)
2: Um,
1: themselves. Yeah, initially. Um, But then if you don't have anything to back up that overly positive presentation, people really dislike (laughs) you. Um,
0: is that uh, like almost like it was a trick or something like that? Like you you feel like you've been duped? Is that, is that his is research
1: doesn't get into that, right. but I suspect that it has a couple of explanations. One of, one of the things may be that is that we don't like to feel like we've been duped by people. Um, the other is that some of the research that we've done, um, and this is research with uh, Cameron Anderson and Sanjay Srivastava, showing that when people think they kind of hold more of a powerful or respected position in a group than they actually do, people do not like that. And I think the reason why people don't like that is because you're sort of saying, I'm amazing, and so I'm actually entitled to all these resources of the group, and I'm entitled to this respect of other people. And if you're not, that really makes people angry, and they basically want to kick you out of the Mm -hmm. group.
0: Hmm. That's interesting. It's it's also amazing kind of how flexible a lot of these mechanisms are dependent on the environment that you're in i mean some of the most wonderful best conversations that i've ever had are about like you know there's a small group of friends talking about existentialism you know or something like that but but uh I, I sometimes err and and uh, you know making existential like comments and just like during a party or something like that and and, uh, and getting looks like hey we're, we're trying to have fun here <laughs> <laughs> what are, what are so it, it is interesting that our brain is able to be flexible enough to find these different um, yeah activate these different mechanisms and um, and yeah I mean I de- definitely depression does seem to be like... Very, very crippling as far as um, uh, the ability to be productive and get out of bed. Yeah, yeah. All that. So, yeah. so some of the other work that of yours that I wanted to talk about. You do some stuff with uh, first impressions.
1: Yeah, right? a little bit. Yeah.
0: Um, mm-hmm. Could you talk a little bit? Uh, because I, I saw specifically like job interviews. You've done some research with job interviews and and how. Um, and and how uh, what it takes for the brain to change these impressions? Right. right. Can we talk right. a little bit about this? Yeah,
1: yeah. So this was uh, Jamil Banji's dissertation research actually, and it was a really fascinating study because um, psychologists have long worked out kind of what happens as we get to know people and we learn new information about them. Neuroscience has not done as much research on that, so it's almost like if an alien came down and read the neuroscience literature, what they would think is like, you see a picture of someone's face, you form an impression of them. And then, you know, it's, it's over. Like there's nothing happens after that. Um, But we know that that's not true. I mean, the example I gave earlier of, you know, somebody seems like a good moral person, they do one evil thing and you kind of change on them on a dime. And so we wanted to kind of look at, to try to sort of, take a first step toward understanding the brain systems that are involved in these kind of changing impressions of people. But we also know that people do kind of form these initial impressions and sometimes won't let go of them. So we kind of wanted to figure out what's going on in the brain. Mm -hmm. And so we did a study where people would see a picture of somebody and they would be told, you know, hey, do you think this person is competent? Do you think they're incompetent? And then they would watch a series of video clips that supposedly had come from a job interview that this person had taken part in. Um, These were actually all actors, and it was all scripted. Um, But the clips were kind of jumbled up. So sometimes they would be saying a lot of things that made them seem like a good job candidate. Sometimes they'd be saying a lot of things that make them seem like a terrible job candidate. Or there would be kind of a mix, and you'd sort of have to figure out how much are you going to weigh the positive versus the negative stuff. And what we found is that um, there's sort of certain part of the brain, um, this kind of la- lateral orbital frontal uh, region, is involved in when you kind of make a snap judgment of somebody, like you know you're you're not a good job candidate just on the basis of their photograph, and that region will activate to the extent that you hold on to that impression even after you start watching these videos of them. And you kind of won't really, you sort of like dig your heels in and say like, "Mm, no, I don't like this person. I don't care what I just saw. Mm. I'm sticking with that. Um, And then we found that there were two other neural systems. One that kind of triggers... um, when you've decided to kind of start giving someone the benefit of the doubt so you you start seeing them in a more positive light than you had originally, and that is actually separate from the neural system that is recruited when you have a lower impression of them after learning more about yeah. them
0: so as as someone who's whose um uh, positive bias is is uh, telling them the uh, that uh, they're far more open-minded than most people right. but, <laughs> but, but uh, say say someone uh, say someone's aware of this and uh, and they're aware of these uh, the dangers of of um, you know it, this imprinting of a first uh, impression and they want to overcome uh, overcome this and and kind of be more accepting of, of people what what kind of have you found ways to kind of prime prime that to to get people to let go of some of the first impressions like the erroneous ones anyway
1: yeah i mean so we haven't done that work ourselves and i'm not sure i mean people have done that more looking at stereotyping Mm -hmm. um in terms of kind of like in group versus out group so a lot of times they look at like cross-racial type interactions ours was based on physical attractiveness so we basically showed people physically attractive people versus not very physically attractive people and um you know people tend to assume that people who are not physically attractive are less competent even when they have no information right.
2: <laughs> about
1: that um but in terms of how do people combat uh, those kinds of biases? There's certainly been a lot of research looking at that. I don't know that there's a lot of consensus on the best way to try to combat that. Um, there are certainly some people who would agree that making people aware that that bias exists can help a little bit, um, but other people have found that that doesn't actually help in the way that you would hope. Um,
0: so if you're an employer um, trying to get the best employee and and you want to have the most unbiased look like, at uh, might might it be better to after reading resumes and and determining you know based on past experience hopefully and um, and maybe references or whatever uh, might might it be best to do the interview like over the phone or over email rather rather than in person or.
1: Maybe, although some recent research suggests that even things like the name where you know it's a man versus a woman affects how much you think the person is qualified or how much your salary you might offer them. For example, there's work by John Barge um, out of Yale on this um, where they actually had the exact same resumes, but they either had a male name or a female name and showed that people would give different advice to the candidates depending on their gender or they would offer different salaries. Um. Hmm. Yeah, so I don't know. <laughs> no, no, no problem. <laughs> I um, don't know the best way to I feel like we we want to solve that problem but I don't know that there's a clear answer at yeah. the moment. Yeah. Okay.
0: Um so so before we wrap up I I'm just going to have one last question along the same lines. Um but uh, I have each each of my guests each week plug a non of their choice, and so what is the uh, charity you would like to promote this week?
1: Yeah, thank you. So I just wanted to um, mention uh, Girls Rock, which is an organization based in Austin, Texas, and what they do is they actually hold summer camps for uh, teenage girls in which the girls come together and they form rock bands, and they actually work together in groups and write a song and, um, you know, perform it by the end of the week of camp. Um, and it's a really cool kind of mix of teaching people arts, which I feel like we could use some more of that. Um, but also organizational and leadership leadership skills that you could use in any kind of occupation. Um, and it's, yeah, it's just a really great program and, they could use all the help they could get so. yeah
0: i mean i think society in general needs all the help with trying to i i, I f- there's just so much uh, like uh, cutting of arts and you know recess yeah. and everything else yeah. and, <laughs> yeah. and i think it's kind of damaging to society so everyone can go to the here we are website and find out more about girls rock from there lastly and this is along the same lines and uh so hopefully this isn't too frustrating of a of a uh, question to answer but i but i was i was just thinking i, I had a conversation very recently um uh, i was a guest on another podcast and and we were talking about how um uh, how uh, all, all this new interesting information that we're learning about ourselves and how how it's kind of uh changing the world and and uh, could be used to make the world a better place one of the examples that we used was uh, we we're talking about the digital age of things and and uh, online dating and how now there's websites coming out where where you're sending in your pheromones like here yeah. matching <laughs> people based on pheromones or or what might even be um, a, a, an even better connector is matching people based on on like their amount of vasopressin to determine how uh, like matching people by how monogamous they they might be and uh, and and then we are talking about so so this is the idea of getting more information being beneficial, but then we are talking about kind of along the lines of of what we were just saying with the first impressions kind of uh, like I remember reading in one of malcolm Gladwell's i think blank uh. That, uh, about how they held um, some symphony auditions, like w- with with a curtain in front, so they couldn't see the actual oh. players. And and this woman got picked as a trombone player, um, and and she had never been picked and been rejected many times because there's just this bias against um, the people think you need to be taller to play the trombone or whatever. Right. And and what we might might do as far as you know ma- making sure you know if you have like a, a kind of a blind courtroom or whatever where maybe the so so the judge isn't um non-consciously seeing you know a, a black person or whatever and assuming that they're guilty and and not realizing that that's what they're doing and i was curious what what do you think the future of uh, and and also what what uh, what in your own work are you excited about exploring uh that might be two different questions but mm. but as far as one um uh, gaining access to more information and and how that can improve our lives and two figuring out kind of some some of these um primal cues that we want to learn to avoid and and kind of defend ourselves against
1: yeah i mean i guess because really, ultimately, what we're interested in my lab is how people are able to see the world in the way they want, right? This kind of wishful seeing or subjective reality, right? Mm-hmm. That we don't just dispassionately, like a computer, kind of take in everything and then sort of see everything. We, we kind of imbue everything with meaning based on our previous experience, our current moods, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And that's what I find really fascinating. Yeah. Um, just because what it means is that two people can be in the same situation and actually walk away with different perceptions of it. And that is fascinating to me. That's what I want to understand is how does that happen? What are the implications of that in terms of people getting along or making good decisions? Um, and so I feel like we actually, you know, even you're asking me, you know, how do we get rid of bias and the fact that we don't know, there is no clear answer at the moment. People are working on solutions. Um, I think that, You know, one of the things that if I could choose, um, the more information that I would want to learn that would be most helpful is how do you get people not to have these biases or these expectations in the first place, right? Because then we wouldn't have to teach people to overcome them, which requires a lot of mental effort, which is hard for people. And so if you could just from the beginning teach them a different set of associations or maybe not form these biased associations, that would be best. <laughs> right. Uh, like, like how, uh,
0: if you have a new puppy, you want to get it around as many different kinds of people and as many different dogs and socialize right. it so so that it doesn't get ingrained this idea of like, oh, there's an outgroup dog. I better, right, I right. better attack it. Yeah. So maybe maybe we can start earlier on in, yeah. in our educational system. I systems.
1: think that that would be amazing. But I also think that. You know, a lot of these biases they've shown is that it really is for the sake of efficiency. And it's a way that your mind kind of tries to take shortcuts because it sort of says, "Okay, yeah, I've learned this association. This is true. Just go with that most of the time unless something forces you not to go with it. Right. Um, And so we're kind of fighting against that efficiency as well.
0: Right. Okay. Well, uh, thank you so much for being a guest on my show, Jennifer Beer. Uh, (laughs) That was fantastic. Um, And thank you, listeners, for being curious. And I'll talk with you next week. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Please don't forget to rate, review, share, tell everyone you know, all that good stuff. Uh, we have a lot of exciting stuff coming up. It, you'll remember we did a few episodes on homelessness. I uh, remember the start of Season 2, which was last November. I said I was going to uh, once in a while. We're not we're not going to do it a lot, but I'm, I'm hoping for once every other month or, or so, or maybe once a month at the most. I'm going to be reaching out to a nonprofit of some kind, and uh, and just kind of asking them about uh, what they see and um, and and their their views on you know these people are a little more hands on with some of society's problems, and so I'm, I just uh, want to give myself and others the opportunity to hear from their point of view rather than um, you know, politicians who have. I've never actually gone out and seen any of this stuff. But uh, anyhow, (laughs) I don't know why I'm ranting. But I'm doing, uh, uh, there's a a farm sanctuary in California I just went and visited. Um, And and so I'm going to be talking about, we're going to be getting into, um, uh, into, uh factory farming which is really interesting i am not a vegetarian or anything so i'm i'm excited to to hear the point of view um and also a few other things i better not even say it just in case something happens to fall through but i but i do have some pretty exciting stuff lined up in that regard um And in the non-profit kind of area. So, yeah, a lot of exciting stuff coming up. Next week on the program, I'm going to be talking with Chris Robichuk. She is a... uh she is the head of the personal growth initiative research lab and in lubbock texas and i stopped through to talk to her about how um how i can make some positive changes in my life i think i'm gonna need to talk to about 40 more people (laughs) that study this stuff before it really takes but i'm trying guys we're all trying um so to, tune in next week we, we all want to be a better person right or or something like that, or maybe not beat ourselves up uh as much for for not being um, uh, the the person maybe we think we should be or whatever so yeah you know, this is something that 's relevant to all of us. So tune in next week for that. And you guys are fantastic. You're my favorites. The one that listens, uh, the people that listen all the way to the end of this. Shh. You're my favorite ones. The other listeners, they're nice and everything, but you guys are the best. So thank you very much for hanging in there through all my announcements, right up until the end. Done.
2: Say uh, Seinfeld was, was on an island and he was blowing <laughs> Boris Karloff.
1: What would it, what would that be like? <laughs> it might go something like this.
0: Oh, Mister Karloff, I loved you and
1: Frankenstein, and I love giving you a blowjob. Why, Mister Seinfeld, I'd love
0: having you.